You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. The different numbers went on these verses, and sometimes they break up verses in an odd spot, and this is one of those places. You who are kept. So you have an incorruptible inheritance, undefiled. I discovered something this week, and I I can't remember what the words were, but in the Greek, that inheritance, incorruptible, and undefiled does not fade away, all those words rhyme in the Greek. It was was a memory trick for them. Peter Peter wrote it in a way that those those words rhymed, and they built on each other, and I I should have wrote them down. I'm sorry I didn't. I'm a failure. I failed you. But anyhow, just know that this is a, a thing for you to remember, to help you remember that this is an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, that does not fade away. It's an inheritance that cannot be corrupted, it can't be removed, it's there, it's waiting on you. Some, we don't do well with large sums of money as young people, we just don't. The reason we have to wait for our parents, grandparents or whatever to, to die before we get the inheritance is because they know as well as we do, well they know better than we do, that it would probably destroy us. If we received a million dollars and we're 18 years old, very few people do well with that. Usually they throw it away on riotous living like old, like old uh, prodigal there. But so this inheritance, we've got to remember that this inheritance is a future thing. It's there, just like the inheritance that your parents may leave you or your grandparents may leave you. It's a future thing, but somebody has to die for you to receive it but it doesn't mean it has less value. In fact, most future things, if it were talking about stocks or gold or or whatever, or a a big apartment complex that they're going to leave you, whatever, it's going to increase in value over time. So the inheritance is growing, but it's being kept for you over here because you can't handle it right now. You don't have the maturity to handle all these things, but it's kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed. When you are standing at the gate, they give you the key to the, to the box that has the inheritance in it. And it gets given to you. It's ready to be revealed, but it's not until then that it's ready to be revealed. You gotta look at that. So looking at the lives of these apostles like Peter and seeing what they dedicated their lives to, it really makes me wonder why it is that God chooses, I don't wonder, but I, he tells us that he chooses some to be prophets, some to be pastors, some to be teachers, some to be evangelists, administrators and in all these different spiritual gifts but in these guys these apostles in particular these were some pretty special men for a time um their duty uh was to be a proclaimer of the gospel in fact that's all that's every christian's duty a proclaimer of the gospel but much more under the persecution of the saints in that era these guys were more outspoken and they had been with christ they had seen him firsthand they had been with him every day for three plus years, more or less years, and they had seen him walk, they'd seen him live, they'd seen him exist, they'd seen him speak, they'd seen him do miracles, they'd seen him do all these things, and those were all downloaded into them. And they took those things, and then when he rose from the dead in his resurrected power, and he comes to them in Acts chapter 1 through uh, uh, 6 through 8 right there, and, and he tells them, now go do these things, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, go speak this gospel to those places to your neighborhood to your county 
to your enemies and to everyone else that could possibly, that's what that means. That's what those signs mean. That's what that means. Your neighborhood, your closest people to you, Jerusalem, Judea, your county or that region, Samaria was the enemies of them and to the ends of the earth. Go take the gospel to those places. And so Peter, very oriented to the Jews, Paul more oriented to the Jews at first, but then when they reject him to the Gentiles, and that's how we received it today, us Gentile people. We got, we might have one or two Jews in here, Jewish blood in here. Charlie Alva swears he's got Jewish blood in him because he said some Jews came from Spain that made it to Mexico that eventually got to him. So I don't know. He might be stretching it. But we, we're all grafted in, if we're believers in Christ, to the Jewish vine. However, these guys were very special people in that they were, they were just a special called preacher of righteousness here and there for a time, and they were very powerful, their influence. And Peter really understood more than, more than we do maybe what it meant to be a kept man. You know, I don't know if you know what a kept man is. It's kind of an old-timey saying. You know what a kept man is? used to be um, if, if you... Um, not to be vulgar, but there, like if you were a kind of a degenerate guy and you could talk your way into a really nice lady's house that had, she had a lot of wealth, you'd be a kept man. You could live there and exist there and you were just kind of arm candy, right? And she would do all the, she would make the money and you would live the lifestyle that you thought you were accustomed to, that you should be living in, right? And that was called a kept man. They call them kept women too, like a, a guy that marries a younger lady and, and she's just there for her, her looks and her charm and Whatever he says, that's what she does, and she gets to live the big life, and he has the nice eye candy when he goes walking around town or whatever. Sugar Daddy, yeah. Sugar Daddy's the opposite of kept man, but thank you, Mark, for the, in, for the deep insight there. I have enough trouble staying on track, sir. Stop helping me. So anyway, the definition, if you want to look it up, it, but, because I want, I want you to see this, because I want you to be a kept man, a kept woman. I really do. I want to read this definition to you. This is the the secular definition of a kept man. A kept man is a man of inadequate resources to maintain himself in the custom to which he aspires and whose living and lifestyle are paid for by a richer woman. In return, he provides his benefactor with companionship, friendship, emotional support, and perhaps a certain example in society. And this is the very position that all of us should desire to exist in, kept by God. Just take the word woman out of there and put God in there. You are an inadequate person with inadequate resources to maintain yourself in the customs in which you aspire and your living lifestyle is paid for by the Most High God, by the salvation of Christ. In return, He provides, um, in return, you provide Him with companionship, friendship, emotional support. He doesn't need our emotional support. And an example in society. He keeps us and he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He keeps you, and he says, live this way. He provides everything according to his riches and mercy, and he says, live this way. And if you're a wise person, you will revel in the fact of being a kept person, kept by God. God's keeping provides everything we need. It says, kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. To be kept by God, then, is a really good place to be. Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you is faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. If he's going to keep you, he's going to care for you. If he's going to keep you, if he's going to have you, that it, 
I got to get to this. I got to say this because there's some here that are likely unsaved. If we went to Ephesians chapter 1, you'd see that there's a word that says chosen. He says chosen from the foundation of the earth. And he talks about us being chosen. The word chosen is an adoptive term. And in the Roman Empire, I know some of you have heard this before, but bear with me. It's an adoptive term. So the Romans, there was a lot of street children. There was a lot of people that had children, didn't want to take care of them because their society was like ours. And it was just over-sexualized and there was these street kids. And you could go pick these kids up on the street. You could make them your slave, your servant, or your son. You could, go, you could pay them or you could just keep them. And they were glad, the Roman Empire was glad to get them off the street. But if you chose to adopt these kids, you adopted them just as they were, no matter their flaws, no matter their hang-ups, whatever, missing an eye, missing a hand, crippled, you know, mentally retarded, whatever. If you adopted them, they were yours. And you could actually, you could actually go to your blood-born son and say, you're dead to me, you're no longer my son. But you could not do that with one you had chosen because you knew they were messed up and you chose them anyway. And that's the picture of adoption that God gives us in Ephesians. He knows the very worst, just ponder in your mind for a second, the very worst thing you've ever done, don't say it out loud and don't start crying either. He knew the very worst thing you'd ever do, the very worst thing you'd ever say, the very worst action you'd make against someone else or your own body, and he chose you anyway. And when he chooses you, he keeps you. He doesn't reject you. He doesn't spit you out. You're dead to me. If he's got you, he's got you. If you're not his, you're out of luck. But if you're his, you're kept. You're maintained. You're, you're held. And I've told you before about that. Jesus says, no one will snatch you out of my hand. So he's got you in this hand. Then he says, my father who is greater than I, no one shall snatch you out of my father's hand. So my father's hand is over Jesus' hand. And you're not even pulling yourself. You're a someone. You're not even pulling yourself out of his hand. If you're chosen and he chose you, he knows what you are and he chose you and he keeps you by his power, by the power of God through faith for salvation. Do this in your Bible if you want. Some people don't like to write in your Bible, but if you do, circle the word kept and then draw a line over there to the verse before it that says you. Just circle the word kept and draw a line to the word you. And then go to verse 6 and it says, in this you greatly rejoice. Draw another line from you to greatly rejoice. And then in verse 7 it says that the genuineness, genuineness of your faith, draw a third line from you to faith. You kept, you greatly rejoice, you faith. You can connect all those. It makes like a big triangle looking puzzle because all those four words work together for you. He's doing the keeping by his power. And in this, you should greatly rejoice. As a kept person, you shouldn't feel oppressed, but you should feel free that someone greater than you that knows exactly what you are, knows exactly what your heart is, knows exactly what you think, knows exactly the worst thing that's happened to you and the worst things that you've done, and he decided to keep you. And no one, and you're a someone, no one can snatch you out of my Father's hand. It's the picture, if you need that picture, of the mom taking the kid across the parking lot to, to Walmart and the little squirrely kid and they're trying to pull and she's got the monkey grip on his hand. There's no way that kid's getting his hand out of mama's hand. If she has to drag him creaking and screaming, 
he will drag him into the store because he's not safe in the parking lot. And the Father knows that we're not safe in this world without him and his hand of protection upon us. And you're only as safe as you are close to the Father. The closer you are, the safer you are. The more distance you are, the more unsafe you are. Get in his hand. Once you're in his hand, you are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. The first thing is to be kept. You've got to be kept. I don't think we take that seriously enough. We're also reminded that Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, you know, he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it until the end, until you croak. If he began it in you, he's going to complete it in you. If he chose you a street child, a worthless being that every other person walked by, spit on, ignored, whatever, he chose you there and he took you and he put you in his hand, he will keep you all the way until the moment of death when he takes you even closer to himself and you're in his presence rejoicing with him in fullness of joy that you can't hardly experience here because you can't see it all. But when you get there, you're like, man, thank God he kept me. You can't keep yourself. He does the keeping. I think this is the problem with a lot of believers, a lot of people. I can fix this part in myself. If I could just fix this one natural piece in myself, I would be better. I'd be a better person. We'd have a better world if we would just love one another. You can't love because God is love. And you have human love, and your love is broken and is corrupted. But the one who keeps you has heavenly love, agape love, perfect love, and he pours it into you and he holds you, and then you can have true love for other people, for sinful people, and for God. And without his love in you, the, the love that you have is it's inconsequential. It's a broken love and it's a worthless love. You need his love flowing through you to have real love and to understand love. We really struggle to understand what real love is. We don't know. We think it's a physical thing or some kind of emotional flash. And the kind of love that God has is so much more stable. It's unconditional. It doesn't matter our response to him. It, it just, his love just is. And it doesn't change. It's immutable. That's what that word means, immutable, not changing. So anyway, he has the power to keep us through faith, our faith. We put our, place our faith in Christ, just like you place your faith in a parachute. If you jumped out of an airplane, it would keep you from getting smushed when you land on the ground. You put your faith in Christ that he will keep you, he will maintain you until the end when you die. And in this, verse 6, you greatly rejoice. To be a kept man in a secular society would be a shameful thing, in my opinion. You young guys, that's because I told you that that's an option. Don't be running down that road, you hear? You go get you a job and you take care of your wife and you be a good father to your children, a good husband to your wife, and a loving provider for your family. But to be a kept man by God, that's something different. A kept woman by God, that's a special, a special place. It says there's an inheritance reserved in heaven for you. It's already placed there. It's, it's loaded up. And like I said, I hope you've circled those things. You've got the you, you're kept, you greatly rejoice, and it develops the genuineness of your faith. So maintain that. Keep that. Go back and read that in your word and see if I'm telling you the truth. I pray you will. So uh, let's see. So to be spiritually kept is to have no need for an eternal retirement account because it's already been put there on your behalf. Here's the thing that we really struggle with as believers. 
there's a fine line between the faith without works is dead and in working towards being more saved than you were yesterday. A lot of people, because of their past, because of how they've existed in the past, because of what they've done, we, we met a little girl at the mission. Well, I can't be saved. I'm just, I've done, you don't know all the bad things I've done in the past. I don't care. She starts confessing to me. Don't confess them to me. Confess them to the Lord. I can't do anything about it. Because it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, his mercy, that he saved us. By the washing, regeneration, renewing of the Holy Spirit. We didn't do anything. The only thing you bring is your complete helplessness. And like I said about being chosen off the street, he chooses you and he keeps you. You bring yourself and you tell him, I am helpless and I am hopeless and I'm, I, I don't know what to do. I can't take care of myself. And he says, come right here and I'll keep you. And I pray that you can grasp that the Lord has every ability to keep you until that day by his power. The same power, remember that old song? It's not that old. Same power that, that brought Jesus from the grave. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave, that created all of creation, look outside and see. Go out there, any one of you, and create one tree. I dare you. One daffodil. I won't make it easy. One clover leaf. Just go make one clover leaf. And I'll be highly impressed. And he created all of creation for you. And so in that, give yourself to him. Quit doing the good works effort uh, that you think you're adding to the equation. You can't add anything to the equation. He does it all. The only thing you bring is your sins, and then he even removes the sin from you. It's naturally in you. We do good works because we're grateful to God for his work of salvation, but not to earn salvation. We're just doing it because we're a kept man, a kept woman. A kept woman keeps the house nice for the man when he comes home. A kept woman keeps the, puts the nice you know, beefsteak on the grill for when the man comes home because she's a kept woman. She makes sure that the laundry's done. A kept believer, he, she, he does whatever it is to keep the house in order so that when the Lord returns, he finds him faithful. When the Lord returns, will he really find faith upon the earth? The, the answer is like, no. But he should, with his people. With his people. His people should be doing what a kept people do. Keeping their heart clean. Clean hands, a pure heart. Keeping their feet clean. They're not stepping into evil. Keeping their mouth clean. They're watching what they say. Keeping their spirit clean. They're watching what they take in through the ear holes and the eye holes and the mouth hole. Because everything that goes into the man comes back out of the man. It's not what goes in that defiles him. It's what comes out of the man that defiles the man. So the kept man, he keeps himself clean. He keeps his clothes pressed. He keeps his helmet on. He keeps his belt and his, and his uh, shield shined up and his, and his uh, slippers of uh, the gospel of truth. He keeps them ready, ready to go, resold each morning, ready to go out and do the work that he's called to do. We act in regards to the poor or orphaned, not because it's a drudgery or because we fear being cast into hell, but it's what our master assigns us to do. And he keeps us until that day. When we do it in our, this last thing, when we do it in our own strength, it goes right in the trash can. When we do it as honoring to God and the one who keeps us, it goes right into the bank account. So do it with the right spirit. Do it as you act as, out of the Holy Spirit. It's out of obedience to him that we seek to do his will and not for fear of losing our salvation. So in this, verse 6, you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. So, so to continue on this line here a little bit, 
just you can measure this in yourself. Do you do things that you consider spiritual things in a way to be, uh, you think would be more satisfying to God? Like, I won't do this. I'm not going to have an extra piece. You know, it's like, I saw the cake there. I didn't eat the piece of cake so that maybe I'll lose weight, <laughs> you know? And then I tell myself that I'm going to be skinnier because I didn't eat that piece of cake. But all I did was frustrate myself. I got to tell you a little story on Renetta, but I got some donuts in there from Ralph's Donuts last night, and Renetta said, you got to put those in the back seat. They're talking to me. So, so Renetta, by osmosis, lost weight overnight because she did not eat the donut. You know, we do these things a lot of times uh, before God, and we say, well, I'm going to do this, and then God will be more happier with me. And I don't know, that's bad English, but he'll be more, ple whatever, pleased, more pleased with me, right? And this it doesn't work that way. You, by your actions, cannot either grieve God or make him happier. He's this. He's stable. He's immutable, unchangeable. His love is unchangeable. His joy is unchangeable. His wrath is unchangeable. His justice, his judgment, his mercy, his grace, it's all like this. It's a, it's a line of unchanging line. It never changes. He acts out of his righteousness, he acts out of his justice, he acts out of his judgment, his mercy, and all those things, but he doesn't change with those things. We do. In our fallen, broken state, we're like this. I'm happy, I'm sad. I'm depressed, I'm joyful. Whatever, I got the humps wrong, but you know what I'm saying. It's up and down like a roller coaster, just however we feel that day. I love my wife today, I'm mad at her tomorrow. I love my kid today, I'm mad at her tomorrow. And you're like, why can't my love be like God's love? Because you're broken, that's why. And if you're as broken as that in your, just your emotional state, how much more in the things that you try to do good in your own strength? I'm not saying you're wasting your time by doing godly things. I'm saying make sure your spirit is right when you do godly things. If he calls you to do the thing, do the thing. If he doesn't call you to do the thing, don't worry about it. That's not, that's not what you're supposed to do. Do what's right. Do what you've been called to do. Care for the widow and the orphan. Speak to others about the gospel hope. Whatever, do what you can, because that's what we're called to do. But to do things to try to get a better standing before God, you're wasting your time, because you're already kept. He's already got you. If, he's, if you're saved, he has you. He loves you. Just like a good father wouldn't reject their child when they do bad things, the kid goes out and scratches up the bumper of the car, you know, he goes out on a, on a date at night and comes back and he's bumped up the bumper, then he comes home, the dad doesn't say, get out of my house, you're not my son anymore. He just says, cough up $100 to fix the bumper. I mean, there might be a price to pay, but he doesn't reject the son for the failures of his life. No more would he say, um, okay, son, you get an extra part of the inheritance because you didn't bump up the car last night. The inheritance is the same. Anyway, we can't change our sin nature. The Lord does the work. The power of the Holy Spirit indwelling us does the work within us. The only way you can live a Christian life is by the power of the Holy Spirit and the fact that you're kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The spiritual growth that is demanded by God here, and this is hard, this is going to be the hard part. You, that was the easy part. This is the hard part of the message today. Is that spiritual growth comes from suffering and testing. You wonder why the church doesn't grow. It's because I talk about this. You're like, well, who wants to go to the church where they're talking about suffering? How can suffering bring joy? The easiest example I could come up with is childbirth. A woman gets pregnant. 
Um, it's a negative that brings a positive. A woman gets pregnant by the miracle of God. Nowadays, it's, it's just a miracle that people get pregnant because there's no men or women or whatever. But the woman gets pregnant. She suffers. Her feet swell. Her belly swells. Her back hurts. Then she has the contractions and the labor pains. Then she takes it out on her spouse. And so there's angst in the room. But once the child passes from the womb into life, the joy replaces all of the nine months of suffering. And really, truly, uh, Renetta had a, um, a C-section. And, and I know it was painful, but when they brought the baby in and lay it, all the tears just go away. If there's tears, it's tears of joy. And they're holding the baby. And it wasn't until she tried to walk up the stairs the next day at her house, she's like, oh, <laughs> she remembered. But, but in time, you know, you get over it. And you forget the pain, and you have the joy of the, the, the life. And that's the picture of this suffering that's being talked about here. i got to read you this article. And I left a couple of them back there. This guy, there's some three or four back there. Look at this little, I don't know what, uh, let's see what country he's from. Bangladesh, little fella. His name is Omar. So Omar gets saved. He was an Islamic, a fundamentalist Islamic. And he, he receives Christ. Um, he receives a Bible. He goes, begins an untrained man in the Scriptures. He begins to go to the Muslims where he lives. Starts preaching the gospel to them. He takes the Koran and the Bible and places them side by side. And this is what the Koran says. They talk about, uh, what's his name, Esau in the, in the Koran, right? And then they got Jesus in the, and they know that it's the same guy. It's the same man. And he goes to describe that to them. And they listen patiently. And afterwards, one of the Muslims gets up and just flips out. How dare we listen to this guy? He's a liar. And they get him arrested. Police questioned Omar about the torn Koran. He didn't tear it. One of them tore it to get him in trouble, but refused to believe his explanation of what happened. They led him to a dark room where two officers took turns beating him with batons. They asked questions like, why are you spreading Christianity and how much money are you being paid? Omar replied with a simple honesty and he hadn't been paid anything to follow Christ. He said, I'm just a sinner and I need a savior in my life. The officers blindfolded Omar and tied him in torturous positions. At one point, they tied his wrists and ankles together behind his back and hung him upside down. They beat him all over his body, including on the soles of his feet. The scariest thing was when I was spinning, he recalled tearfully. It was horrible for me. On the days when Omar was beaten, he ate nothing. The hardest part, he said, was after they tortured me, I was thirsty and asked for water, but they would not give it to me. He said they would often only give him water so that he could take painkillers, which enabled them to prolong the beatings. Omar lost con often lost consciousness during the beatings, but when he was alert, he would pray. And during one of those prayerful moments, he said he had a vision of Christ. When I was getting beaten and tortured, I felt more peace in God. He said, I felt some of the pain that Jesus did when he died for us. Getting beaten was like a blessing for me. I was really happy for that. Um saved, imprisoned, beaten, waken, beaten more, given pain pills, imprisoned with Muslims later, and they would beat him and, and do different things to him. And when he gets out, what does he do? He goes right back to preaching the gospel. In fact, he goes to seminary. And uh, his case is still pending. He's out right now, but they're going to take him back. And he thanks God for the trials that brought him to a deeper reliance on Christ. We consider going to Chick-fil-A and they get our order wrong, like, we have been persecuted, the suffering is great. Well, I can't believe that I got no waffle fries or whatever. And, uh, and this guy, have mercy, Lord, on this man, Omar, that he hung in there when the persecution was great. 
And in our day of time, there's just too much emphasis on trying to cure whatever it is that ails us in the present, whatever it is that bothers me right now. It's about psychological things. I need counseling for this. I need PTSD counseling. I need emotional counseling. I got depression. Um, and I understand some of these things, you know, sexual abuse and things like that. Yes, there's, there's a need for counseling. But we're trying to fix things that are spiritual in nature with secular or temporal uh, what cures. And we're going about it all wrong. We're trying to develop better uh, develop ourselves better psychologically or something, and, and we're trying to build our bank accounts just in case we do have to get some kind of medical care. We'll have enough money there to go pay for the medical care, and there's very little reliance of, on God, and, and the idea is just avoid any type of earthly suffering. Instead of introspection, we should be looking upward to the great God and Father that we have and to his marvelous inheritance, which he has prepared for us to receive someday. Quit trying to improve your old sin nature. You're not fixing it. It's broken. The thing is broken. You got a 73 Pinto wagon as an old sin nature. That's what you got in there. That's an old ratty car. They weren't good when they were new. That's what you got. The old man is that old car. I don't care how many paint jobs you put on it, how many oil filters you put on it, how many sets of points and plugs and stuff you put on it. It ain't running. It's a Pinto. Your, your heart is the same way. Your natural, not your heart, sorry, your natural madness is the same way. It is broken beyond repair. And the only cure is by the salvation that Christ provides in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's the cure. He does the fixing on the inside. You can't fix it. You're messed up. I'm messed up. I'm probably more messed up than you are. You can't fix it. The way... You say, well, I don't like trials. One time when Kristen was little, we were, well, we were reading A Voice of the Martyrs and we read something like that. She goes, well, man, if that's how Christians are treated, I don't want to be a Christian. A Christian. I don't want to be a Christian. No, I don't want to be a Christian. And I understand. Man, we don't like to suffer. We don't want to be in pain. We don't want to go without. We don't like to be hungry. We want to eat all the time. That's why we're all shaped like I am. I mean, that's why. I mean, we just don't like to suffer in any way. But the but the Bible tells us that it's through the suffering that grows us a closeness with Christ. Look at verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. I'm going to tell you that you will likely never have a true love for Christ unless you have a true suffering that draws you to him. It just doesn't work that way. I don't know what to tell you. If you don't like trials, I, don't, I mean, people have trials. I'd rather have trials and have Christ than have trials and try to do it without Christ. We're all going to have trials. We're all going to have parents die. We're all going to have grandparents that we love die. Uh, we know a girl whose grandmother died, I mean, two or three years ago, and she still grieves and has cemetery days, and she goes down there. She still grieves like it was yesterday. The woman passed. She's gone. She's not coming back but you can see her again. Look forward to that day. It's part of your inheritance. She'll be there. So he's going to do it through trials. Jesus tells us in the world you will have trials. Look at John 16. We got that verse, I think, John 16, 33. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulations, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. 
I can promise you that if you're a live, living human being that breathes breath into your lungs and, and exhales breath out of your lungs, you will have tribulations. You will have people that disagree with you. You'll have people that dislike you. You'll have people that, that try to harm you emotionally, physically. You will have car accidents. You will have problems with your household. You'll have problems with the, everything that you do. You'll have, if you ever have children, you'll have problems with your kids. It's part of being a human. It's part of being alive. It's because the earth has fallen, because Adam and Eve fell and they sinned. And that sin was passed all the way to today. And because of those things, we're going to have tribulations. And more, as a follower of Christ, people are going to say, oh, you think you're better than me? And you're going to say, no, I'm worse. But Christ saved me. I'm way worse. I just recognized that I was worse. And by his mercy, he saved me. Go to Hebrews 6. I think we got that one too. This is a really solid verse here. Look at Hebrews 6, 17. I had to read that a couple times. It's powerful. Hebrews 6, I want you to get there. 6, 17. Make sure you've got the right person in here that you're identifying who's speaking and doing what. But at verse 17, thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability, the unchangeability of his counsel, confirms it by an oath. I swear, God saying of himself, I swear to myself, this is what I'm going to do. That by two unchangeable, two immutable things, that's immutable, is unchangeable, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. Look, is that not a, man, there wasn't a single amen or a nothing. Listen to what, let me read it again. By two immutable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor for the soul, which both sure and steadfast and, will, and which enters the presence behind the veil. Because of the anchor of the soul, the hope, the place where we fled to refuge, if you read through it backwards, it goes back to God. God unchanging provides a place of hope, a place of refuge. It's an old Bob Dylan song. I'll give you refuge, refuge from the storm. You need a place to go when it's bad. And he's the place. He's the one. And everything else changes. I mean, go to Florida. And you, they build big, nice, beautiful buildings right on the ocean. And then a hurricane comes in and it's sand again. God's more powerful than anything that man can develop or build. They say, well, it's tornado proof. And then a tornado hits it and it falls apart like a little stack of cards. God is immutable. He's all-powerful, omnipotent. He's all everywhere. He's omnipresent. He's all-knowing, omniscient. He's immutable. He's unchanging. We change. We're up and down. He does not change, and he swears on himself that he will not change, that he does not change, and he says, in my unchangingness, you can have a strong consolation to the place, to who you fled for refuge. You can flee to him for refuge. He's the rock that is higher than I in Psalm. This hope we have as an anchor, you know what the anchor does? I think it was Alva was telling me about these anchors on ship, and they had, you know, a thousand feet of earth, whatever, how many miles of chain, these chain links as big as a row of these chairs. I mean, they're huge. They're, you know, I can't describe them. Eight, ten foot long, one link. 
and 36 inches through the hoop part, and there's a mile of that stuff on a thing, and there's an anchor at the end that's big enough to hold a battleship, and they stick it in the bottom of the ocean, and it holds ever how many zillion ton battleship or a, or a, or a carrier in place, the anchor does. He doesn't move. When he's dug in, he doesn't move. It doesn't matter what's going on on the surface and the waves and whatever. The anchor remains in place. It's stuck in there. It says he's sure, an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast, unchanging. And it allows entrance for the presence behind the veil. It allows you access to the Most High God into his presence. In the Old Testament, they didn't have access to God. They had access to a man who had access to God, the high priest. But now we have access to the high priest of high priest, Jesus Christ, and he gives us access to God. We speak to him, and he speaks to the Father on our behalf. He makes reconciling, a reconciliation between us and the Father. It's an amazing thing there. Poor Omar, we look at him and say, man, that poor guy, he's been beat down and kicked around, and he may go back to prison, and his wife is worried about that, and he's going without food. He says his back still hurts, really broke his back and so on. We say, poor Omar, and Omar looks at us and goes, you poor Americans. I wish they could know and be kept like the Father like I am. I wish they could know the Father like I know the Father. Um, You've got to remember, we don't offer him anything. He offers us everything. That's grace. It says there, verse 7, back in Peter, sorry, First Peter 1, 7, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Like I said about that word precious, it seems, like I said, a very feminine word, um, just because the only time guys use it is when they're mocking some other guy for being weak, you know, oh, aren't you precious? But it's more of a a development, I mean, here's Peter, he's an outgoing guy, he's an outdoorsman, he's a fisherman, he's a jailbird, he's been in prison, he ultimately is going to be hanged upside down on a cross by, beside his wife, and beaten, and Peter, that Peter, the manly man, he says that this trial that tests your faith is more precious than gold that perishes, and we've looked at that picture of being refined before, and uh, you know, gold is refined by a certain amount of heat that turns it into a liquid state, and I don't know however many degrees, say seven, eight hundred degrees, and it turns it into a liquid state, and then they skim off the dross, they skim off all the stuff that, that makes it less than perfect gold. They skim it off. And if you were to make jewelry out of gold in its purest state, most people's gold rings, if you looked at, like my wedding ring, I know is a 10-carat gold. Um, some ladies, maybe 14-carat or maybe 18-carat, but when you get up there... 24 to 28 carat, 28 carat being perfect, pure gold, it gets so soft that it's easily marred, right? It's easily bent and damaged and so on. Um, so we add things to our rings to make them hard. Just like the believer, we add things to our heart to make it hard instead of keeping it soft. And he says, I want it soft. When your heart is soft, like pure gold, the Lord can mold it into what he wants it to be makes it into a piece of fine jewelry but the thing about fine jewelry is uh it can be marred by men so other men come and assault it and we have to go back to the father and he goes back and he forms it again and he makes it nicer and nicer and he polishes it and he embellishes it and makes it better it's an excellent picture that of gold 
And it says ultimately, if we read on down there, that, that gold is going to pass away, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold. In verse 18. But the gold that he modifies in us, when he takes us and he molds us and he makes us, it's just a, a great picture, that, of a, a golden believer. It's soft and malleable by God, but it's marred by men. But we don't have to stay here. Eventually we pass and then we go to be with him. So that softness that is generated by the hardness of the fire and the suffering, it purifies us into a usable sanctification. And to be sanctified is to be holified. And it takes time. Pure, the purest justification, sanctification that we will ever exist in will only come after we die. But until we die, we're being molded and developed by heat and pressure. That's how valuable things are made. That's how emeralds are made, heat and pressure. That's how diamonds are made, heat and pressure. It doesn't take time. It takes heat and pressure. Um, you can take someone from a very immature person to a very strong person by a terrible event happening to them. We saw a girl, we saw it happen to a young girl, she was maybe 12 or 13 at the time, and her mother got cancer and um, had to get her, her breast removed. And this girl was kind of a goofball. And I'm telling you, overnight, this girl became a champ. She's cooking for the house, she's caring for the mom, bathing the mom, caring for the mom. Things that, it took pressure and it took heat and it took an immature person and made them very mature almost overnight. And that's how it works. Spiritual newness of life helps us to leave the things of this earth and clings to the things that are above. And the, and the problem is there's no shortcut to maturity. You have to go through the heat and pressure. You're going to go through it anyway. We're going to go through it because it's the world that we live in. It's a fallen and a debauched place, and that's just how it is. But much better to have the Lord leading you in that than to be trying to navigate that by yourself. So the suffering, and, and this is something I'm, I'm really discovering as I've, I've been to a number of people's bedsides as they've passed away or gone through hard things. And suffering is a very individual thing, like true, miserable suffering. I will tell you that in the times in the military where we were in the field or something or the weather was particularly bad or something, we really grew close as a unit when things were really bad. Um, suffering draws closeness. It does in families. We see that with, it, it'll do one or two things. It'll make them or break them. A, a, a family have a child pass away. They'll either be so close, the parents will, or they'll end up divorced. Um, but a child watching a parent pass away, that will develop in them either a hardness or a softness. It really depends. Each suffering is individual to that person, but God has a design in it specifically for you and for your personality. He knows what you are, and he has a path for you to trod. You're going you're gonna to walk it anyway. Man, walk it with him. When we see the Lord Jesus Christ, Christ face to face, we will acknowledge only then that the tests were worth it. We have trouble seeing it this side, but like this Omar guy in prison being beaten, he says, I, I just couldn't believe what he said. I'm going to read it to you. This, this is last line. It said, I felt some, uh, when I was getting beaten and tortured, I felt more peace in God. I felt some of the pain that Jesus did when he died for us. Getting beaten was like a blessing for me. I was really happy for that. Are you man enough for that? Are you woman enough for that? Are you precious enough for that? That precious word is that treasure. 
when those things happen, we're to treasure them. Because what it does, verse 9 says in the end, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Just like the baby being born, um, there's going to be some suffering and pain to get from now to the finish line. But after the finish line, all this will be, it'll be forgotten. Well, whatever you can remember of it, you'll remember the highlights, just like the mother does in the, in the um, carrying the child to, to life. You'll remember the highlights, and that'll be it. I pray that there's been a refining of your spirit today, here, you here, that has come through salvation. I pray that that initial refining has been done. I fear many of us are like Abner, or if you read the, the devotional for today, um, he was a man who was loyal to the king, but he wasn't close to the king, and therefore he was a fool. And it says, well, will Abner die like a fool? Because he got outside of the presence of the king, and it put his life at risk. Many Christians are Christians in name only because they walk outside of the presence of God. They've wandered far away from God, and they keep wandering far away from God. It's not that they're not kept by the power of faith unto salvation, but they're so distant from him that they're at the mercy of the evil one, they're at the mercy of the world, they're at the mercy of false teaching, they're at the mercy of whatever they're filling their minds with, and it's crippling them. And it won't, they will not handle suffering well because they're too far from the presence. You've got to be close to the presence. When you turn your eyes off the presence, man, you're, you're asking for it. And he'll give you the desires of your heart. He says he will. And if the desire of your heart is to walk separate from him, he'll say, oh, go ahead there, prodigal. I'll see you on the way back because you're going to be coming back. <laughs> but there's no sense in having to learn those hard lessons like that. You might as well stay in his presence, right? Okay. When in trials, consider it all joy then, knowing that the trials build into you a hopefulness that will be truly complete only in heaven. I do, uh, I know those are hard verses, maybe that about suffering and thinking about that, but I, if you could dwell on one thing, go back to that First Peter five, uh, 1 verse 5, who are being kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. And I pray that you'll desire to be kept. And, and if you don't desire that, then I pray that you'll examine yourself to see if you're of the faith. To be kept by God is a good thing. To be rejected by God is a terrible thing. You're storing up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. So I pray you'll get that straight today. Let's pray together, and then we'll prepare our hearts for communion. Father, in the name of Jesus, you, you bring your word to us from First Peter, and he's walked a harder road than we've walked, all of us. Lord, for Omar this morning, I pray that whatever he's doing today, Lord, that you bless him. I pray for peace in his home today. I pray for safety for his life today. I pray, for, I pray that his wife be at rest and not be in worry as she thinks about what they've done to him and what they plan on doing to him in the future. Father, for these here today, Lord, I pray that your spirit would be on them and you would fill them to overflowing, Lord, and that they would desire to do your will, whatever the will is that you have for them to do, that they would do it. I pray for those that have wandered far from you, Lord, today, that are seeking to find joy and happiness in worldly things, earthly things, rather than you. I pray that you would have mercy on them as you chasten them and draw them back to yourself. I pray for those that are here today, Lord, that are unsaved, that have heard the word, that, Lord, you would make it clear to them. If it was unclear, Lord, that you would clarify those things by the work of your Spirit in their heart. 
and that they would, you would knock on the door of their heart and that they would open up and you would come into them and you would save them. Thank you for your goodness, Lord, and your long-suffering towards us. And yet, while we were yet sinners, you died for us. In Jesus' name, amen.